there's a lot of focus these days on upcycling and recycling within products. And I think we need to expand that thinking into really looking at our cities and start understanding the value of redeveloping and whether it be brownfields or incremental or public space strategies in existing areas to say, how can we actually take what we have already developed and improve it and make it better for the future? Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Afri. Afri is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry and infrastructure are you ready for a new episode let's go for it i have the pleasure to welcome christian to urbanistica podcast hey and welcome thank you i'm glad to be here how are you doing I'm doing great. Uh, working from home today, as many of us are from time to time. Um, had the pleasure of traveling a little bit last week, but otherwise uh, mostly based in Copenhagen, which is uh, unusual for me. Yeah, I see it's uh, sunny in Copenhagen or there is a light. I think I, uh, I, I think it's a it's a lucky reflection. It's it's a normal fall grayish uh, day here as well. <laughs> yeah, the same like uh, here in Stockholm, almost dark. Yeah. So. Should we start? Sure, let's do that. Are you ready? It feels ready. Yes. So you are our storyteller for this episode. Feel free. The stage is yours. The mic is yours. How would you love to introduce yourself and tell us about your passion? So uh, my name is Christian Villatsen. I'm uh, a partner and director uh, at Giel uh, in Copenhagen. I'm an architect, uh, of course. Uh, and you can say... My passion is uh, very much about, of course, designing and 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 uh, making cities for people, but also uh, understanding how uh, the way we design cities influence how we live a life and how that can input uh, impact a more sustainable future for all of us, hopefully. Yeah, and this passion to create cities for people, when did it start? Well, um, you know, I think it's almost like textbook stereotype. I have an architect dad and a, a mom that's a teacher. So I grew up between construction size and this mom who just embraced and loved and cared for everyone. Uh, so that's sort of the, 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 the way back story. But I think maybe more, um, more recently or when I started really working with architecture, first at the School of Architecture, but also later as a professional, I realized as much as I loved sort of the aesthetics, the design, beautiful design, all these kind of acts that you as an architect tend to like. I also found that I was actually more interested in, uh, you can say, the awareness that you can create with physical objects and form, uh, almost like an, how artists or some contemporary artists work with um, with creating awareness by being provocative or in form and these kind of things. So I was very interested in how architecture isn't just uh, a beautification, but also something that actually is very much in our face and forces us to take a stand on one thing or another. And I think that was then, uh, I think, 
shaped through my education with good professors uh, working around the world. My place also a mission driven office like Giel, where uh, we 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 work to make cities for people basically. Yeah, so many different interesting elements in your journey. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and also you wearing the the black t-shirt architect. <laughs> <laughs> I, in that sense, I'm still stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> But it's actually, I'm so happy, like every time I, I talk to an architect and the architect telling me that uh, I, I am passionate about creating things for people, so which is great. And this is also going to be the core of our topic. We're going to talk about form, follow function. Yeah. And in your opinion, it's going to be function, follow form. So it's it's super interesting. I would love to start that. Tell us more about form, follow function, like so, the background of it. Yeah, of course, form follow function is probably the most, uh, one of the most uh, shaping terms for uh, the last century, basically. So I think it's uh, Louis Sullivan is going to have said it first, uh, this form follow function, it was very much a part of the whole modernist movement. This idea that uh, we should, uh, architecture and design should rid itself of ornamentation. Uh, it could, all of a sudden, we could mass produce things uh, in terms of design, but also in terms of buildings, we got these new material, steel, uh, glass, concrete, that allowed us to build a different kind of aesthetic, but also a much more functional driven architecture. And that's sort of that kind of form follow function where it sort of resonates with Louis Sullivan. And of course, the, the early modernist thinking in, in the beginning of the last century, but certainly certainly really impacted our way of, of, of thinking about um, uh, architecture and, and design and cities in, in especially after the Second World War and up until maybe the 1980s, 90s and up until today, actually. So that's sort of the, the legacy of it. Yeah, um, but, but how, how did it impact our, our way of thinking and designing cities? Yeah, so I think uh, for me, it's... Uh, Form follow function makes a lot of sense when you're designing a doorknob or when you're designing a chair. It's it's really quite, it makes a lot of sense that a chair is something you need to be able to sit at. Form follow function, the way it really impacted in a large scale, uh, the way our cities look today is it was also this kind of rethinking of how we plan cities. It was an sort of an, an organization of how uh, city, uh, the cities were structured and how planning codes are structured. So all of a sudden we had this kind of, you know, traffic planning, uh, housing, green, all these kind of different uh, organizations within our city body that cared for one element. So it was a very engineered thinking in terms of um, of how we plan cities. Uh, you could live there, you could work there, and you can shop over there, and you can take your car in between. Mm. So, so in that sense, it had a, an impact that was far beyond object design and building design. It was really about how we lived our life and how we regulated and organized uh, everything around decision making in our cities. And that's, mm. of course, the the big. Um, uh, legacy in reality of modernism. Yeah, and do you when when you started to learn architecture at the school, what did you study? Also, this way of thinking. Of course, I think it was uh, when when you trained around the time I was. Uh, of course, uh, form follow function was was something that. Uh, was very much part of an aesthetic. It was part of a, a, a keep it real. You know, it was there was a lot of these kind of things. Cut it to the bone. There was a lot of these kind of impact that went 
really well. We had in the, in the 90s this kind of even a secondary way with the, the whole Dutch school around um, Kohlhaas, but it was, it was like this off the shelf. It had to be very honest, everything, um, which was sort of a second wave of, of modernism, which was a different kind of aesthetics. But again, this, um, this kind of, um, uh, you can say, um, yeah, still, still building on, on that kind of approach to architecture. Yeah, it's going to be interesting also to know how you shifted from this way of thinking to, to the new way. But I would love to ask, you mentioned like the, the building should be honest. What do, what do you mean as an architect by being honest? Yeah, I think I think that was part of or there was maybe uh, maybe it actually came later. But I think there was something where all of a sudden we were very aware of this, that a building should show how it was constructed, that I was cutting it back, that it shouldn't be, you know, gift wrapped to look like something it wasn't. So there was something there where and it was very much, uh, you can say, down to uh, building at this modernistic idea that you it was uh, true to there was a direct link between you can say the structure the function and and uh, of course the, the 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 form form should follow the function and this is maybe moving towards where i changed is that you say you were always dealing with a function um a functionality um it, it could be the uh, the uh, you know the, the the structural function of the building but it was often the program of the building it was often very monofunctional um and was solving a element or a object in the city and not actually dealing with the the bigger uh, equation that a city is yeah and now like as an urban planner working with the cities what i see is like each building it's a, a project by its own there is no relation between the building and the surroundings yeah and i think i think the the focus uh, was all in on the building not really on what's happening around yeah I think that's still one of the biggest uh, biggest challenges that we have today. That we we tend to solve uh, within um, a, a boundary line or a side boundary, uh, and I think that's something that uh, is part of that history. But it's of course also part of how we scope projects, how economy works, how we regulate. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, it isn't just the architects solving one problem, but it's also the whole organizational structure about around decision making, regulation, uh, and the economic uh, drivers of a city. Yeah. Uh, so Christian, tell me when was the moment when you be like, okay, this is not really what we're supposed to do, and we should like really switch it. Yeah. So very early on, I started, I was working a lot with uh, basically the 1960s developments of, of uh, the Western world, uh, the million program, as you call it in Sweden, uh, these kind of areas that were built really fast, uh, built in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, very much building out the modernistic ideal. Uh, it was often large monofunctional residential areas uh, at its best. It would have a shopping mall at the core, uh, a highway going through it, uh, you know, these kind of areas. And what was interesting and, and, and also um, alarming to me is how many of these areas had actually become deprived housing areas across uh, the Western world from the United States to, to uh, all of Europe to even um, uh, Russia and Asia further on. And I was trying to figure out what, what, why is it that these areas specifically have a tendency to become deprived housing areas. And of course, some of it had to do with ownership, renting, these kind of things It had to do with social structures and organization. But there was also something here where you had something 
where people were often um, uh, in a situation where they were maybe vulnerable. Uh, they were socially vulnerable. They were maybe out of uh, a job. There was a number of, of parameters that goes with uh, uh, often that goes hand in hand with deprived housing areas. And it was like a perfect storm because it was linked also to a physical uh, disconnection to the rest of the city. And, and that was something that blew my mind a little bit. I worked with uh, uh, a large uh, estate in, in Malmö um, called Rosengård. Um, and it's, it's an estate of, I think, more than 10,000 apartments. I think there's about 25,000 uh, people living there. Um, and it's, it's completely segregated in a Malmö context. There's this, uh, and of course, there's been a lot of discussion about this, but uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic uh, grew up there, the famous uh, Swedish soccer player. And in his fictional, non-fictional uh, book, he says, I never left Rosenko until I was 17. And of course, uh, I can imagine it's a, it's a story, but there's also some truth to it. It was literally placed 800 meters from the, the sort of pedestrian network of the inner city and still completely isolated. So for me, it was interesting that you had these areas where you could say um, the people that lived there often didn't have a, a job or a social network that in, gave them a reason to leave the area on a daily basis. And at the same time, because these were huge monofunctional housing areas, no jobs inside with no real a few shops inside, very locally based, no one from the outside had uh, a reason to go in. And all of a sudden, you stopped sharing public spaces, you stopped sharing streets. Um, all these things that normally is what makes a part of a society is sharing the infrastructure of the city was lost. And I realized that actually then the function started following the form. For these were shaped to be housing areas, and they were shaped to be monofunctional, and they were just that. Uh, and they were actually designed to be houses in a, a park, it was called. In reality, it was uh, uh, green grass that was very little used, uh, as we found when we did our surveys, um, and often unsafe. So that, that made me realize that maybe this, um, uh, maybe it's more right in an urban city to uh, scale to think about uh, function as something that actually follows form or uh, and of the buildings and the programs of the buildings. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you watch the reality and you reflected about why the different things happening and not really like keep going with with how with the business as usual of of, of designing cities and blocks. Yeah, for sure, and I, I think it's uh, it it it's just it's really helpful and healthy to think about this bigger equation to say it's not just I'm I'm designing the best housing building in the world, but. It, what really matters is how does that housing building actually cater for the people that live in it to connect to the rest of society. And I think that's turning it around and, and that's how I, I came to play with words and say maybe we should think more about how the function actually follows the form. So let's start with how do you, Christian, define form? Yeah, I think uh, I would say that actually form is are everything in a physical environment that is non-natural. Uh, so it's 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 you can say the physical framework around us is what shapes our life, and everything around us that is not naturally grown is something that we have shaped uh, and given uh, form. So that for me is I guess the form of our cities. 
and and how is the function how is the what how do you define it i think there's there's two levels to it i think one thing is uh, the function of an object so it's a it's a house we live in an office we're working etc uh, but functions also the behavior that a certain physical environment encourages. Uh, you, you can say that, uh, um, yeah, we we end up being in this situation where function is actually uh, a spin-off of the physical environment around us and the functions that are in those physical objects. Mm -hmm. And I guess this concept is, let's say, is a kind of new compared to all the modernism uh time so what, what are the advantages of, of following this kind of uh, equation um well i think first of all uh, and i think that goes a little bit also with with uh, with uh, where we are that we realize that today uh, the most important aspect of of uh, of how we live a life is is basically that we live a life that is uh, sustainable and for me, something that came out of this whole discussion of function for the form is this kind of passion for sustainable behavior. How can we actually encourage sustainable behavior? And I think uh, that's that's where these things sort of link up because uh, we have to think about how all the objects that we design, how buildings, how we design cities, how that actually encourage people to live more sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's uh, that's that's the core for me. Yeah, and when we say sustainable behavior, are we talking about the people or also about the transportation, the buildings, the, the energy, how to say energy smart buildings? So for me, I think it's fantastic what's happening these years with certifications of buildings, certifications of neighborhood. We're getting so much uh, better at, at recycling, upcycling, uh, buildings, uh, energy efficient buildings. Uh, and a lot of this has become standard and even a market driver. Today, most of uh, a lot of the developers we're sitting with are actually seeing uh, sustainability and certification as a market driver, which is a fantastic thing to have. But at the end of the day, it's still as long as it's within the envelope of a building or a, a, a smaller neighborhood, it still is not the same to say, as saying that we are living a sustainable life. Uh, one of the sort of things that I that I stumbled upon over the years was this kind of research uh, that was done in, in Copenhagen where they found that if you put a standard Danish office building next to public transport, you would save five times the CO2 as if you put a um, zero emission office building in a car dependent area simply because the mobility choices of the people that worked in the building had a much bigger impact on on uh, the CO2 fit footprint than what you could gain from going from a standard, which is a high standard in Denmark building, to an, uh, a zero emission building. And of course, these data are always uh, indicative and, and so on, but it just gave a very strong incentive for saying, okay, it's not just about uh, the object or the building or the local. It's about everything that has to do with our daily life. And it's about encouraging people to to live more sustainable. Yeah, I think we are back to how where you started. It's not about only the dots, but we should really connect them together and, and step back, reflect and see what is the smarter or the more sustainable. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think we can do a lot to invite people to have a more sustainable life. We can do a lot to build neighborhoods that are truly mixed, that will allow a more 
kind of 15 minute community uh, experience. Um, and I think we are, we, we simply have a responsibility to do this. Yeah. How do you see, you mentioned the market are, is really willing to, to be more sustainable, like uh, the retail investors and so on. Here, like in Stockholm, I, I tell the property owners that it's, it's great that you make money. It's not wrong. And it's greater if you do it in a sustainable way, you know, like invest a sustainable business. Yeah. How is it down in, in Copenhagen and how is it like worldwide? Because I know you have so many different projects everywhere. Yeah. So I think, I think actually, uh, I mean, uh, just, uh, I, I didn't reflect too much about, but I, what I do on a daily basis is I, I've almost had like three lives. Uh, you can say I'm, I'm working actually a lot with developers and, and, uh, in, in the, in a Northern Europe, context you can say so also Stockholm for that matter um, but of course Denmark uh, especially the German speaking parts of of, uh, of Europe I've had a lot of talk with different developers uh, so that's one part of what I do and I'll, I'll get back to that I've also had um, since 2008 I've been advising um, an NGO in Beijing that works with sustainable development on the Chinese cities uh, which is a completely different um, situation altogether, but also incredibly meaningful to be involved in. And then I've actually had quite a lot of dialogue also on the future of mobility and the mobility changes that we're seeing, not just within, um, you can you can say, uh, all these kind of new small mobility objects like the scooters and uh, the bike share, these kind of things, but also uh, public transport and even the car industry are uh, really starting to realize that change is coming within mobility. So I think these the, the question you have is is basically means different things, of course, in different contexts. But I would say generally there is a, an awareness across developers that uh, building sustainable is, of course, part of the future. And no one can really ignore this anymore. The question, of course, is how much can you embrace? And as I said, sometimes it's not just... Um, uh, it's not just uh, the limitation of the developer and the vision of the developer. It's actually also the boundaries and the way we organize and regulate our cities that becomes a barrier in these discussions. So it's not, it, I think we're moving towards a situation where um, we in many ways are collaborating uh, across sector to go toward a more sustainable goal. And I think maybe we are moving towards a place now where uh, where where the words and what we're doing is actually getting closer to to actually be being supportive of each other, and I think that's uh, that's quite nice. Do you feel that we are doing it in a very slow way, slow motion way, like that we're doing things together in in a more collaborative, sustainable, like cities, uh, private sectors? I think I think we are uh, to some extent. Uh, being, uh, we are better at, at running processes where we we empower uh, visioning processes that is uh, cross sector that actually allow us to understand each other and where we're coming from. I think that's something we work a lot with, and 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 I think that's something that in generally is work more with. I think we still have a long way to go. Um, uh, we spoke earlier about modernism, and I think 
is I, I read somewhere that 90, 95% of the world's planning regulation was written from 1950 to 1970, when modernism thinking was really blossoming. And of course, also the way we organize ourselves is, is uh, in cities is still very often aligned with the modernist thinking, where we have these different departments instead of a more sort of you can say cross-sector or holistic approach to thinking about planning, where we start by defining the vision and then finding out how each sector can support that vision. Yeah, it was a lot of talk about uh, how do we make it more creative bureaucracy. Yeah, and I think we we, we had many <laughs> steps until we we are really there. Yeah, for sure. And I think we uh, I think it, there is, and I think it's a we need to find a balance where both things can work. And I think part of it is 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 bringing in processes that allow us to share a vision across sectors, because I think we can't, uh, we can't, you know, re remove the bureaucracy and we can't remove the regulation overnight. But what we can do is we can, uh, we can bring people to a point where they can share a vision and with their expertise, help uh, uh, or, or work together on, on finding how we can best optimize each project. And I think that's the way we should move ahead. Yeah. And tell me, what are the disadvantages with with function follow form in your case? Well, I think, of course, the disadvantages is that uh, if we uh, ignore it, um, and I think that's still happening a lot. I, I mean, that's that's still something that's uh, that's happening uh, quite extensively. That we, as we said before, that we have a lot of projects where we work within a site boundary, uh, where we say we are solving this problem, but then as soon as you start to focus on a problem, you're actually ignoring a lot of other issues. And I think that's that's probably the challenge that we're not there yet. We're not there where we fully are embracing this, that whenever we do something uh, in terms of shaping our cities, we will also uh, impact the overall um, function of our cities. Mm -hmm. Can you can you make it more concrete for me? Can you give us an example about how, how do you do that in, in, in reality? I, I think so. Uh, there's good and bad examples, and I think one of the one one example that got me happy here during the the COVID lockdown is that back in in 2015-16, we were part of of um, uh, advising the city of Shanghai, uh, which uh, basically became um, uh, there's three elements that came up of it. It was a, a public space strategy for the the inner city's historical city center of Hongpu district in Shanghai. It was a, 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 a quality driven uh, development plan for actually the entire river, which is more than 100 kilometers of of brownfield area along the Hongpu River in Shanghai. And it was, and maybe most significantly, it was a, um, a street design guideline for uh, for Shanghai. And just, I'll get to the to two levels of projects in it basically, but the Shanghai street design guideline for me was super interesting because it was the first time a Chinese city recognized streets as public spaces. And, and basically 20, 30 percent of, of our cities globally are streets, uh, which means that streets often are the primary public space. And especially in, in China, there's no they don't have our tradition or the, uh, the European uh, tradition of public spaces, of squares and so on. So the street is really an important public space. So just that recognition was important. Um, and, and as such, that project had a huge impact because uh, a lot of cities followed Shanghai in doing this. And just to emphasize the important, before that, 
the Chinese cities only define the streets uh, by how many cars it could take per hour. So wow. a very, very quantitative definition of a street and not a very quality driven definition of street. So that's one side. The other thing that we did was, as I said, uh, a public uh, space strategy. And here we pointed to um, uh, basically there was a, sort of a missing link between the waterfront, the bond, and Nanjing Lu, the pedestrian street in Shanghai. There was about a, a good kilometer of uh, road space there where 85% of the space was given to traffic, but actually 95% of the movement were pedestrian and only 4% of the movement was traffic. And we provided this data and we did sort of a, a transformation strategy and we handed it over to uh, to the Hongpu district and, and the mayor. Um, and it's been very quiet, but it was a, a very sort of evidence-based way of saying, okay, if we should actually have um, a function that follows the form or a function that sort of support, we need to actually change the form here to, to, to support the functionality. Um, and just here this summer during the lockdown, I found I, I all of a sudden received photos from friends uh, that they had now implemented it. Uh, so we weren't involved in the implementation. I don't know which great designer did the the the, the last uh, detailing, but it was at the end of the day, it was this, it was the concept was right. So for me, that's that kind of 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 understanding of also saying okay. Function follows form, but we can actually use that also to improve the the form and and shape of our cities. Mm. So well, that was uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations for being all of this implemented in reality. It's yeah. great to see. Thank it. you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And it was interesting, like how how they moved or they switched their mindset from like counting cars to more like open it to people. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is it is this change of mindset that I think is important that they recognize that we we need to uh, look at look at our cities differently. Mm. I, I have a question in in mind. Sometimes these great projects happen because the municipality are big and have good money to invest and to hire a great architect like you. So what if I am a small municipality, but I would really love to give my city to people and think more sustainable? Why, why should I do that? How should I do that? I think, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, we often say here, and I, I know you spoke with a few of my colleagues, but at the office here, we always say, ask first, what kind of life would you like to see? And then what kind of spaces would support that life and what kind of buildings could support that life? So basically starting with the function, uh, the overall function that you would like, to, what kind of life would you like to live? And I think that's that's sort of a, that, that's a, that would be a, a good way to, to start thinking about uh, how, how to change behavior. I think it's also something where uh, I, a lot of people have said this, but I often argue we should make it easy to do good. Uh, and of course, uh, simply saying, how can we create an ensign of our city that actually invites us to make that sustainable choice on a daily basis, not because it's sustainable, because it's the easiest way to, to use the city. So I think there's some questions there that uh, can be really good to bring up. I think still also, as I said before, using uh, visioning processes uh, can be a very, very powerful uh, um, way of changing um, how we plan cities, uh, and I think that that can be a, an element as well. Yeah, does it cost so much money to start thinking about this? 
No, I think it's just it, it creates a it, it's a different kind of change of behavior. It's a it's the change of the routine in our cities, and I think that's a, in 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 at the end of the day maybe cost free, but of course it it, it you have to yourself um, and the organizations have to recognize the value of it. Mm. And as an architect and me as an urban planner, like if I ask you back to your project in China, what, what are the challenges that you were facing in order to really follow that function, follow form? I think it's, I mean, function, follow form, uh, it, it is very much about uh, creating awareness uh, that something is, a, uh, you can say, a spin-off effect of something else that you do. And sometimes that means you have to go up, uh, go back and finding out what is it that I'm doing wrong so that our, our cities become dysfunctional. Uh, and I think that's the that's the kind of learning loop that we have to have in, in, in all our cities, that we have to recognize that often our challenges are linked to something else that we think is part of the solution. And then finding out how can we adapt these things and how can we uh, change this so often it can be uh, in 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 a city like in Shanghai, which of course is far from here, they are still building uh, monofunctional, uh, disconnected uh, areas uh, to a large extent. Where they, I mean, if you go to a city like Beijing, the average commute is 96 minutes. I mean, uh, that's pretty far from a 15-minute uh, community. On the other hand, they are really aware of the value of this and also the. Um, uh, the, the, the lack of quality and sustainability in having the kind of life they have today. So they do want to change. But one thing is saying we want to change. The other thing is is defining and understanding what's the root of the of the problem to start with. Yeah. What do you think about the 15 minutes? City I think it's, or district? I, I think it's uh, it's I think it's something that you have to un understand at different scales because it's very much about your experience. So for me, 15 minutes is not just 15-minute walk. I think there's certain things I love to have within a 15-minute walk. There's certain things that I would like to have within, especially when we're talking major cities, not Stockholm and, and Copenhagen. They're so small that we can actually have a 15-minute yeah. life. Um, <laughs> but when we look uh, globally, it's also about saying, okay, there's certain things I actually need to have in within 15 minutes. I need to be able to have my grocery shopping, go to the daycare, go to the library, go to the hospital, go get an education, go get a job. All of this is something that I need to have go um, uh, work in in uh, or uh, have the um, society be present in in some kind of form within 15 minutes. And then there's something that is maybe more a, a city level 15 minute where it's what can I reach 15 minute on rail because I think that's where we see in major cities that uh, metros and rail is really where you can make a difference in terms of. Um, the radius of your times where basically in a city like Shanghai, Beijing, it's almost as fast to to bike uh, as it is to take your car because the city is gridlocked. So so rail is really the answer. And there, there are certain things that it can be larger universities, it can be the big park, it can be the stadium. So that's a different kind of or that very important um, uh, public space that is sort of city uh, identity given uh, and where you feel that you're part of something greater. So I think those is a different kind of 15 minute society. Here in, as a, in Copenhagen or Stockholm, uh, we have, uh, we almost all already have a 15 minute society. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really good reflection because I had a kind of the same uh, conversation when I was giving lecture last month in KTH here. And I talked that we should really be careful when we say 15 minutes because 
if we just focus on the 15 minutes of walk, maybe then we are kind of back to Zlatan's story that you, you're just locked down in your box and in your mm. area. And this is a kind of dangerous because the focus will be, okay, only on this, on this zone within 15 minutes and really don't yeah. care about what's happening around. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's I, a good reflection. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, is, it is really relatable to, to scale and also just recognizing that there is different needs we have within different kind of 15 minutes in our city. Mm. And Christian, tell us more about the challenges that you're facing, like in your daily job. What what kind of challenges that you have? Well, I think uh, it's it's. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I try to insist that, for instance, we we always look outside site boundary. That we try to whatever we whether we're working with cities or we're working with developers, that we try to understand how the project impacts the life, not just of the area, but the bigger uh, life of the city and how it brings something new uh, and improves life in the city. So that's that's kind of, of course, those are the challenges that I sit with um, because I'm also working in uh, within the norm. So I'm also, of course, facing organization regulations, uh, economical boundaries, all these kind of things. But I think we have a responsibility as architects to keep challenging uh, the idea of a site boundary and the idea as uh, of uh, a sort of a defined scope of program and 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 always insist on saying this is part of something bigger that is our cities yeah so it's all, always about pushing the limit and and see what we can do more creative in a creative way yeah i think it's uh, it's it, well it's 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 as much also empowering people to 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 have to sh- have a change of mind and and understanding that what we solving isn't just about one envelope. It's actually about how that envelope uh, impacts the world around it. And how much is it about teamworking and listening to others? I think it's. I mean, we do that. Of course, that's a, that's a that's a huge part of it. Understanding context is. Uh, I mean, working globally, that's that's always something that you have to be very aware of. That you should really understand local context. And of course, we listen in many different ways. We listen through interviews, to talking with collaborators, but we also listen in terms of our data collection. That we go out and actually look at how people are using the city. Uh, so you can say listening without actually uh, talking, but listening by observing behavior in a city to understand the context you are in. And I think these things are incredibly important to to actually delivering on, on any project. Yeah. And I know many students are listening to the podcast. So and it's a great opportunity that I would love to ask you, because as a student, you know, you fall in love with your solution and you don't really open to, to, to other input. So what is your comment about this? <laughs> but I, I think that's, I mean, uh, I don't think there's there's nothing wrong with passion and it's great to be in love with your solution, so to speak. But I think it's it's just to recognize that any solution has uh, a spin-off impact on everything around it. And as long as you can, uh, you understand that and, and realize the impact that the solution have, uh, then you're, it's okay. But at the end of the day, you also have to, as I said, take that responsibility and understand what is it that you're building do or, or your public space or your master plan, what is it it does to the greater context? Well, it's it's a great advice, not only for the students, but to all the us of architects also, like working in real life. So it was it was very inspiring to talk with you about the topic. And, and now I'm really like curious about what is your, your favorite city? 
I, I maybe not surprising after what that you told me. I actually I actually really like Shanghai. I think Shanghai is a, an amazing city uh, that I spent uh, uh, had the pleasure of being in a number of times, and it's an interesting city because it's a city that, despite its sort of uh, amazing development over the last couple of decades, still actually have streets that you can walk on. You can walk from one end of the city to the other. You can have really nice center experiences, uh, uh, experience of, of daily life uh, in the very heart. So that's one city that I would uh, uh, certainly say is one of my favorite for better and worse. There's also a lot that I absolutely <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> like about it, but that's that's, I guess, part of the fascination. Um, it challenges me, and and I think that's nice. Uh, and of course, in a European city uh, context, uh, cities like Vienna, Berlin, Copenhagen, Stockholm. I mean, there's a number of cities that I think have different qualities uh, that I really can appreciate. Yeah, that's awesome. And is there any specific public space that you would love to be there? Like every morning, you know, when you wake up, you be like, I want to be there. Well, I, I actually uh, I thought about that, and I, I think my answer is actually the street. Not a street, like a specific street, but streets in general, because I think this is like by far the most ignored uh, and at the same time, actually most important public space we have. It's it's probably the, the public space that's most determining for our sustainable footprint, it, whether we walk or we bike or we take the car. It's very often defined by the streets around us. Um, so it's 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 something that is really important. I think the street is also interesting because it's where we meet despite. So it's, it's the street is something where everybody goes, uh, no matter background, economical situation, cultural situation, it's something we share and where we see each other as we are human beings. So for me, the street is really in that sense also um, a super, super interesting public space, not as a specific, but as a, a, a general public space that is too often ignored in, in, in cities. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the very interesting reflections, Christian. Well, thank you. So apart from all the cities for people and enjoying uh, work to make cities great, uh, what are your hobbies? What do you do in your spare time? Well, I I have two kids, so they take up a lot of my spare time. Uh, I would like to say that I, you know, I have uh, two kayaks. They often just sit in my backyard and are not used. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, so there's, I mean, I think it's it's not that different. I, I love travel. I love actually going to the countryside as well and being outside the city. I think that's important to have that opportunity. So there's a lot of these kind of things that I guess you can call hobbies. But uh, uh, I'm also kind of lucky because I have a job I really like. So, so, so there's a, a built-in hobby to that. Yeah, that's amazing. Is it difficult to raise up the kids or to raise up the buildings and fix the city? <laughs> Well, the kids have a mind of their own, <laughs> but uh, no, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think what the kids uh, do is they give you motivation. I, I think they, uh, I, I be just become very aware that we have to leave behind something that is uh, where everything that we have been influencing and designing uh, is helping making uh, the world more sustainable. And it's, I think this is, I mean, this is said a lot, but it becomes very real when you have, uh, uh, when you have kids, of course, it, you become even more aware of it. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, awesome. So yeah, again, thank you so much for giving your valuable time to record this episode. And I would love that we finish this episode that you give three takeaway messages to all the listeners. Yeah, and I think we actually almost, I, I noted something down and we almost talked about, I thought we talked about it already because I said, you know, we, we have to stop thinking about a project that's something that has a site boundary. Um, and then I think we should start really evaluating sustainable behavior as a, as a thing on its own. So a city should, you know, we talk a lot about smart cities, but really it is to use data to evaluate, learn and improve on delivering the vision. So there's something there that I think is, is, is a really important, uh, and then I think it is, it is, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's the, the, the last thing maybe is that there's a lot of focus these days on upcycling and recycling within building products. And I think we need to expand that thinking into really looking at our cities and start understanding the value of redeveloping and uh, whether it be brownfields or incremental or public space uh, strategies in existing areas to say, how can we actually take what we have already developed and improve it and make it better for the future? I think that's a, that's a, so, so upscaling go large would, uh, would be a, a, an interesting topic to discuss for the future. Yeah, this is very interesting because here in Sweden also, we, the government launched this, uh, re, how to say, circular economy. Yeah. And everything should be like circular. And I think it's very interesting to talk also about how do we recycle our cities or some part yeah. of our cities. Yeah. And I think we are with with a lot of to these these days, our our production ha patterns has changed. So we have a lot of, uh, of course, industrial areas, brownfields in our cities that we are redeveloping into more mixed use areas. And I, I found that super interesting because when we do that, we also build on existing infrastructure. We build on existing public transport network, and we have an opportunity to to build into something where we uh, make it improve it and make it more efficient, but also don't have to build from scratch. So yeah, exactly. I think this is this kind of upcycling our cities is important and maybe benefit also densifying areas like the deprived housing areas gives a chance to give new value to areas that has sort of been uh, lost a little bit on the way. Yeah, yeah. Super interesting. Great. Do you have also three hashtags for the for the episode? Oh man, I'm I'm too old. I'm I'm terrible at hashtags. I'm guessing like cities for people and sustainable behavior would be some of them. But uh... but this is actually really really cool. I, I use a lot cities for people. It's, I, I yeah. love this hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Christian. So what is the next step for you? I think it's, uh, I, I mean, I, I actually hope to be able to continue what I do where I have the pleasure of uh, working with different aspects of the cities from the private developer to the city authorities to mobility providers and, and actually starting to bridging these uh, uh, different sectors that were maybe traditional seeing each other as counterparts and saying how can I actually collaborate on, on building cities that are better for us. Yeah. Thank you and wish you all the good luck. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. You learned something new and also got inspired by the guest. Don't forget to share the episode on your social media and recommend it to people you think they are really interested in this topic. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.